Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm your host, Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Trevor Martin. Trevor, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Trevor. I'm one of the co-founders of a company called Mammoth Biosciences and the CEO. Great. Tell us about Mammoth. Yeah, Mammoth was founded about three years ago now. We're spun out from Jennifer Daubman's lab at the University of California, Berkeley. And the other co-founders of the company include Jennifer Daubna herself. Uh, and two graduate students or former graduate students from our lab, Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington. And the catalyst for the formation of the company was a couple of things. So first and foremost, the uh, invention in Jennifer's lab of this new field of CRISPR-based diagnostics that's very exciting. It's really come into its own over the course of the pandemic. And also this recognition that the way we were able to invent that field and the way that we're driving forward a lot of things across CRISPR is through the development and commercialization of new proteins that go beyond the kind of standard CRISPR systems that most people think about, like uh, Cas9, for example, which is maybe the most famous. So we actually work with CRISPR proteins that are coming from just totally different families like Cas14 and things like uh, Casb, and these have really exciting properties fundamentally that uh, enable just new types of products that wouldn't be possible working with kind of the original CRISPR systems. What kinds of properties? Yeah, so taking CRISPR-based diagnostics as an example, when you're doing CRISPR editing, the main thing you're concerned about is what you could call cis cleavage. So cutting of whatever the target sequence that you've programmed the CRISPR protein to bind to is. And for those that aren't familiar with CRISPR proteins, they're kind of these programmable molecular machines where by giving it what's called a guide RNA, you can tell it to go to a certain region of a genome and to bind there. And then things like Cas9 kind of come with a free pair of scissors that can then cut that DNA. And through the process of repairing that cut, it's a classic way of introducing some sort of edit that you would like to have. When you're thinking about CRISPR-based diagnostics, it's not terribly useful to uh, edit the sequence that you've targeted it to. So what you'd rather do is that you'd rather program the guide RNA to be uh, specific to some sort of disease, like for example, COVID-19 that you're trying to detect. And then instead of editing that disease in a test tube or wherever, which is not terribly useful, you'd rather somehow have the CRISPR protein read out a signal or amplify a signal that it successfully found its target. And a property that many of our new proteins have that enables that is what's called transclateral cleavage, or you can kind of think of it as just a molecular shredder where if and only if it successfully binds its target, so just like a classic CRISPR protein found its target, it's bound to it, not only does it cut the target in cis, so cutting the thing it's bound to, but it also will then, conditional on that, cut all sorts of other molecules in the solution. So you go from binding a single molecule to cutting many more molecules, kind of in this molecular shredder functionality. Uh, and that means that you can then read that out as an amplified signal. So for example, if you're doing some sort of RNA diagnostic, then it binds to an RNA that's maybe specific to an infectious disease. And then you have other RNA marker signal molecules in the solution that are then cut and release some sort of color or fluorescence. Uh, and that can be a way of amplifying a molecular diagnostic signal in a way that's not possible with Cas9. Can you tell us about things like you know the, the length of the guide RNA, how much specificity you might have to something like SARS-CoV-2, and what concerns you might have about new variants arising, and how easy is it to adapt to those? Yeah. One of the advantages of the kind of CRISPR diagnostic system is that it's very adaptable. So 
at the start of the pandemic, one of our really great scientific advisors, Dr. Charles Chu, saw this going on, and we were able to put together some really uh, exciting work very quickly within a matter of weeks showing that CRISPR-based diagnostics can actually detect COVID-19. And we published that both as a white paper and then eventually into a pretty seminal paper, CRISPR-based diagnostics in nature biotechnology, where we showed it in like real patient samples. And we're one of the first groups to do that. And I think in terms of like sensitivity and specificity, starting with the specificity, that's really quite exquisite for these uh, CRISPR-based diagnostic systems. Even a single base pair, you can design it so that very easily it's distinguishing between different alleles at that spot. And in terms of kind of the sensitivity, you can get really high sensitivity both from the CRISPR amplification itself, and then also combining that even with other isothermal techniques in the same or different reactions to get equivalent to PCR type sensitivity uh, with extremely great specificity beyond what even PCR can achieve. And in terms of like additional variants and stuff, one really exciting thing about CRISPR-based diagnostics as well is due to the simplicity of how you can kind of target it to different things, you can actually also multiplex it very easily. So you could either choose to target regions that maybe are less prone to variants and are very constant, or you could actually target the variant areas specifically so you could differentiate between them and actually identify what variant is being detected. Or you could do a combination of the two by actually having multiple guides for different variants in the same reaction so that any of the variants could actually activate the detection. It really gives you a lot of optionality, basically, on which of those approaches you want to take. How do you see this fitting into the menagerie of other molecular diagnostics? So right now, there's kind of this choice in diagnostics about do you want like a super accurate result, something like PCR, like molecular style result, or do you want something that is very accessible and very easy to use and isothermal, for example, just a lot simpler, but maybe with lower sensitivity and specificity. Uh, and it's kind of this trade-off between the two. I think one of the promise of CRISPR-based diagnostics is removing that trade-off to a large extent. So being able to have something that is a molecular style result, but it is in a much simpler reaction, a very uh, multiplexable reaction, something that's very accessible and easy to use, and kind of getting rid of that dichotomy that diagnostics has existed in for many decades. What, what do you think is the biggest challenge to, to getting this out in use? With the pandemic, it's been really exciting to see now already Mammoth has gotten emergency use authorizations for the technology for detecting COVID-19. So before, maybe I would have said that one of the big hurdles is like it's a brand new molecular technique and those take time to come to market. Helping out with the pandemic has been a great thing both for CRISPR diagnostics itself, but also obviously for just helping play a role in combating the pandemic. I think in general, the kind of main things we think about right now are scaling um, kind of all the different formats that it can go into. There's just so many different opportunities. So which ones to prioritize? In general, I think it's kind of cool just looking back. Obviously, the kind of first things people thought about with CRISPR are things like CRISPR-based therapeutics and editing. And there's a lot of exciting things going on there, including at Mammoth. But it's pretty exciting to see that actually the first kind of commercial uses where people are actually interacting with CRISPR are on the CRISPR diagnostic side, even though that's a much more recent invention. What do you see as the most exciting opportunities? There's a couple. So I think what's interesting about CRISPR-based diagnostics is that it is this like new way of doing molecular detection and one of the first new ways in many decades. Like essentially, there haven't been many <laughs> of these new techniques that have come out over time. 
So I think that what's cool there is that there are a ton of different formats it can go into, and it can have a role all the way from like central labs. So increasing the throughput of central labs and the testing that can be done there. Uh, for example, like we have our Boost product at Mammoth launching, and I think that there it can play a big role in like reducing the wait times and like really increasing the accessibility of testing by having higher throughput. And really enabling all the labs around the country, not just the large labs, to really do serious amounts of molecular COVID testing. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have kind of the radical decentralization of testing. And I think that's a trend that existed before, but COVID has now accelerated it by many years because it's really shown how critical that can be. So thinking long term, I think it's really exciting to imagine that the next time there's COVID 2023 or something, you know, hopefully not, but unfortunately it's probably a matter of uh, when, not if, and instead of having it become a global pandemic, what if you had, you know, millions of tests in a warehouse that could be very quickly reprogrammed with a new CRISPR guide RNA to then go after this disease and actually test and trace and contain it uh, at an earlier point. So I think thinking about things like that are pretty exciting. I think the importance of that is underlined by actually the the last podcast we uh, recorded just before yours. It's with a few COVID experts. It, it does emphasize the importance of rapid and scalable and precise diagnostics. Yeah, definitely. Reliability is a key as well, because if you are testing a lot of people, but you're not confident in the result, then um, it can be tricky to understand what to do with that information. Right. So, so can you tell us a, a bit about the details of the origin. I mean, uh, you know, how did the discussions around Mammoth begin? And you were, I think, finishing up your PhD, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's really incredible. Can you, can you, can you tell us about how that came about? Sure. My PhD is a bit more on the computational biology side. Actually, rewinding the clock a little bit more, I originally got interested in computational biology at Princeton when I took a program that had been started by David Botstein who started a program at Princeton basically to kind of, in some sense, trick mathematicians and physicists and computer scientists to become hardcore biologists. And I kind of started the program on a whim, but it really fell in love with the concept and biology in general, and definitely a different way of thinking about biology than I'd been exposed to previously, where it can often be thought of as more kind of memorization or a little bit squishier. That's how I got introduced to computational biology. And in general, I think what attracted me to that is thinking about life as something that's kind of programmable in some sense and has rules and is something that's like very tractable and like very difficult, obviously, to understand fully, but it's not magic. And there are fundamental principles and algorithms that can be applied. Towards the end of my PhD, I think one thing that's really cool is that computational biology has like infiltrated all areas of biology. And I think now it's almost silly to like call something computational biology differentially because like everything is computational now, which is great. I think it's a sign of success of the field that it's just a fundamental tool in your toolbox now for doing any sort of biology. A consequence of that as well, though, is I started thinking about what are kind of other fields that are about to undergo that type of transformation in biology where taking something that's like kind of a new concept, but it's going to become fundamental to everything that's going on. And immediately started thinking about uh, synthetic biology and like all these new tools like CRISPR that are coming out in terms of like really pushing the envelope of how we think about, uh, in this case, a little bit more literally programming biology synthetically. I had some initial ideas around different you know cool tools for this. And in general, I'm a big fan also of this idea of there being power in the intersection of fields and especially like fields that maybe have 
seen less innovation before, like diagnostics, for example. So thinking a lot about the intersection of like synthetic biology and diagnostics and had some initial ideas for stuff in that space, but not exactly a trained synthetic biologist through my PhD directly. And around the time these kind of thoughts were swirling around in, in my head, Jennifer's lab was pioneering this kind of new field of CRISPR-based diagnostics and uh, Janice and Lucas uh, were at the forefront of this. And uh, I saw the papers being published and pretty much saw like, okay, wow, this is way better than any of the things I'm thinking about and is exactly a fit for this thesis around just really the transformative power of synthetic biology in these fields that are maybe a bit underappreciated. So I reached out to Jennifer and the team and you know, I'd like to say that we just immediately started the next day, but of course, spent some time getting to know each other and found that we really shared this thesis around where the field was headed and how transformational this could really be in diagnostics, but then also in thinking about next generation therapeutics and just next generation biology overall. And then decided that given that, we have a really exciting opportunity to start Mammoth together and, you know, really build this platform for what's next and CRISPR and synthetic biology broadly. And what were the early months like? One thing that I really appreciate about the Bay Area ecosystem, and I don't think I understood fully going into it, coming just from a pure academic career, is that there is a lot of people and institutions that are extremely helpful. And there's just like an ecosystem that is really well designed for thinking about big ideas like this and getting them off the ground. So on the one hand, there's lots of great advisors that we connected with early on who just, you know, shared advice for free and were really helpful in terms of thinking through how we're, you know, setting things up, thinking about the future of the company. Then also just more practically being able to start doing experiments really quickly by getting like a single lab bench and like a building that has single lab benches for tons and tons of companies. I think those are really exciting times for sure at the beginning of a company because there's just all these things to figure out, but it's kind of all something that you can uh, tackle and there's no one telling you to do it one way or the other, which of course can be scary as well, but I think it's also like very liberating and exciting. On top of that, I think the just excitement, I think more broadly for these new approaches to biology is really something that truly is at the start of like an inflection point. Uh, and that's always an exciting place to be, you know, and there's been a ton of progress and you know, now we have emergency use authorizations for CRISPR-based diagnostics and things like that. But I still think we're just at the very first part of the inflection, even with all that progress that's been made. So that's just something that makes it really interesting area to work in. And yeah, it's just, it's always exciting to be somewhere with so much potential in terms of just the field. I think the other thing that happens in the first few months is that there's something things your PhD training, academic training really does prepare you for. And I think one of those that's maybe underappreciated is dealing with uncertainty. Like when you're doing a PhD, there's no right answer. Obviously, there's no textbook. That's the whole reason you're getting the diploma is you've hopefully expanded the knowledge of the field. And startups can actually have a lot of parallels to that in terms of there's no right answer, right? Otherwise, someone else would have just done it or there wouldn't be any reason to form a startup around it. So I think having dealing with that uncertainty over long timescales even is a super great asset that I think is underappreciated that uh, people have done PhDs bring to startups. On the other hand, I think somewhere where maybe you're a bit woefully underprepared, both for academia, I think broadly, but also for startups is hiring people, managing people. That's definitely somewhere where you have to have a lot of growth very quickly because 
especially in the early days, but I think every single day at a startup, even after you have thousands of people, every single hire is just huge definition of what your startup is and where it's going. So it's one of the most critical decisions you make day to day. So I think that's somewhere that the, yeah, it's just a super steep learning curve, I think, in the first few months. But I think that criticism of PhD training can also be applied to preparing people to be PIs. So. Interesting. So what areas of biotech other than CRISPR-based diagnostics are you most excited about? Yeah, there's a lot. Some of the ones that are talked about a bit more that I think are interesting are things like the data storage side. That's a little bit directly related to synthetic biology because being able to read and write is greatly influenced by those tools. I think more generally, something that's a little bit maybe less visible that I've seen a lot of that is pretty exciting is non-drug or molecular approaches to therapeutics, whether that's sound-based or diet-based or other things. I think that there's a lot of really interesting work going on there. And I think that work, though, is going to require even more exquisite on some level understanding of what's going on molecularly long-term to really understand mechanisms and have better hypotheses about what works and doesn't work there. But I think as we develop that really great foundational molecular understanding, it does allow an opportunity to hopefully take it to the next level in terms of those types of approaches. And yeah, I think more generally though, the simple answer is I think even fields like CRISPR that obviously have been in the public eye for several years now are just at the start of the inflection points. Like kind of like it seems like something that it's already made so much progress because it has, but I think it's still not even at the 20th percentile of its potential in terms of where it's headed over the next 10 years. So. so what would you say are the most important things you've you've learned since you started the mammoth journey? Yeah, I think the the first one would definitely be going back to the people side. You know, you do things like collaborations in academia, and obviously you work closely with other people. But I think something that's underappreciated is how much like a startup can really align people around a common goal. And that can be a really exciting thing. I think there's a lot of stuff to be said around kind of having that shared vision and actually bringing something into the world as well is something that I think I appreciate a lot. So whereas in academia, you might publish a paper, obviously, and you know, hopefully get cited many times and like drives the field forward. And that's definitely rewarding. I think for me personally, there's something just an order of magnitude more rewarding about having something that actually then goes and helps someone directly rather than always being a few steps away from that. And I think that that's something that's pretty enriching about startups in particular that maybe I didn't fully appreciate at the beginning. But yeah, I think in general, kind of all the learnings about working with people and recruiting people and managing people, that's been some of the most rewarding stuff and interesting stuff that uh, has been a part of the mammoth journey so far. You're exposed to a lot of different ways of thinking, and it's also just critical to the business. So you're kind of forced to learn a lot about it, too. What advice would you have for first-time CEOs? The main advice I would have is to not be too wrapped up in knowing everything. And it goes back to the people as well, but like trust is the critical element. Because in my opinion, the only way like you'll scale into a successful company or as an individual is by relying on others that you trust um, because yeah you can read every book you want and like try and become an expert in like all these different areas but you'll never be able to do that even if you're just like a perfect genius fast enough to like cover all the things you need to learn quickly as quickly as you need to learn them 
So the only way to scale yourself is to scale yourself with additional hires and people and the team. And the only way you'll leverage them effectively so that they can actually help you scale is if you hire people that you trust and really empower them to do the things that you hired them to do, right? Uh, an even worse version of this is hire someone that's really awesome and then like make all the decisions for them anyway. <laughs> so I think that would be the number one piece of advice because it can be a little bit counterintuitive because on the other hand, you also don't want to seem like you know nothing and you uh, want to convey some area or of authority. More fundamentally, a lot of that trust from the team the other direction comes from the trust towards them as well. And I think that's something that can get lost, especially for early stage founders. And that's one of the most important transitions that happens as the team grows. What's something on which you disagree with most of your peers? Why are you right? <laughs> yeah, it's a classic uh, Peter Thiel interview question. One thing that I'm a big believer in that right now is definitely a more controversial topic in the Bay Area is whether Silicon Valley will remain the place that kind of the next generation of startups are going to be born and grow, or if now maybe accelerated by COVID-19, uh, everything's going to be decentralized and Silicon Valley becomes more of a mindset maybe than necessarily a place. In biology, it's kind of funny because in many ways you could replace Silicon Valley with Boston actually for that uh, comparison. But I think there's some trivial reasons why that's not true for biology, just in terms of like you need lab space and people have to come into lab. And maybe those are the less interesting reasons why I think that San Francisco and the Bay Area in particular will remain kind of the center of innovation. But the less obvious reasons would be around what I mentioned at the beginning around the ecosystem and how supportive it is. Like, man, this first few months, I can only imagine if I was not in the Bay Area or Boston for that matter, maybe one or two places in the United States, just how many orders of magnitude more difficult it would have been to get started. Like, it's just way, way, way harder. And so one result of that is maybe maybe the deep tech startups stay in these certain hubs and maybe software truly can just be built anywhere. I don't know. Like, I, I'm not familiar enough, but... My gut intuition is that I do hope it do, does democratize access to building a startup more because I think that's important. I, I think the ideal would be that you could anywhere start a company just as easily. That's definitely the ideal in my mind. But I do believe that the reality is that places like the Bay Area and Boston will continue to be where you kind of have to come to really build startups that are really ambitious and have a lot of capital behind them to really tackle audacious goals. Not just because that's where the capital is, although that's part of it as well. I think the barriers to that are lessening with Zoom, but more because of the support networks around, even from the small stuff like the lab space all the way through to bigger stuff like you know where you're going to recruit people. I think that that's something that is just way more sticky than even a year of remote, kind of forced remote can remove. And I think there could be things that disrupt that long term, but this would be on like a 10, 20 year timescale and have nothing to do with I think the power of like remote tools and more to do with do other areas start to encourage innovation more than the Bay Area or things like that. So, yeah, that's my kind of thoughts on is Miami or somewhere going to kind of supplant San Francisco. Uh, I hope that Miami grows into an awesome tech hub, but I don't think that's necessarily at the expense of the Bay Area. So what can cities like Miami do to increase their biotech competitiveness? Miami's starting from pretty far behind. You know, maybe we can uh, talk about Raleigh Durham or something. Yeah, well, I think that's a great example, actually, because you are starting to see 
a lot more kind of startup activity there. I think it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem. So one way to get around that is to do pretty massive like public investment in incubator space and like lab space and like increasing access to capital and things like that. I think that's like table stakes. I think the harder part is the mindset because I think something that's really important and you see this even in little microcosms of the startup world is examples of success. And I think this is one thing that I hope Mammoth can contribute back long-term is an example of where scientific founders built a successful company coming out of PhDs and contributed back to the world in a really impactful way. And because right now, like the classic biotech model is that the scientists you know, have some idea, it gets passed off to maybe like a venture firm, and then they hire in a bunch of people and like, they go off and do it and deliver something of value to the world. But I think there's this new model that Mammoth and other companies are pioneering where you don't have to pass it off to someone else and you can really kind of drive that vision forward yourselves. And I think that can have huge advantages long-term for like the vision of the company and where it's headed and the innovation that happens after the technology has been transferred that I think long-term just beat the pants off transferring the technology to people that aren't the ones that necessarily invented it. But I think Silicon Valley and the Bay Area and other places have a huge advantage that people have seen people found companies that go on to be super successful. And like, it's just, it opens your imagination, right? Like I grew up in Georgia and knew nothing about startups. I just wasn't exposed to it at all. It just wasn't a thing I had any understanding of. So how you know, could I possibly even think about that as something that would be interesting, just not even on my radar. But then when you come to somewhere like Stanford, it's like everyone is doing it for better or worse. It's just like an accepted part of the paths you can take. Uh, and that means you have more people trying it. And that means you're going to see more examples of sex. So it's this self-reinforcing loop. So I think the trickiest part is getting places that are not the Bay Area or Boston or the usual suspects. I think they need a few big wins and like a few companies that like really pioneer it. And, you know, so anything that can be done to support those companies and really get them across the finish line and support them as best as possible, because then you've opened everyone's imagination. They're like, oh, yeah, like those people from Duke, yeah, they like founded that company that's, you know, listed and like has like a bunch of products out that we use all the time. So, yeah, oh, yeah, we should like they did that. Like they were in my shoes 10 years ago. Like, why can't I do that? And I think that's the trickiest part. And that's the big advantage that the Bay Area has over anywhere else. It's just that mindset somehow. So you touched on something that I think is pretty important and that we try to explore a bit on this podcast, and that is inspiration and what inspires people to do what they do. At what age did you know you wanted to be a scientist? It's an interesting question because I think early on in my life, I wanted to be a historian. I was like obsessed with history and yeah, just anything I can get my hands on. Yeah, it wasn't until maybe late in high school when I started to really understand and was introduced to these ideas of you can kind of like build up a model of the world actually some ways similar to history like the part of history I think I was most interested in is like what can we learn from our mistakes and like use in the future to like prevent us from doing things that we don't want to do again and science is like an ultimate form of that of like okay by doing experiments you build up a corpus of knowledge and you can actually predict the result of the next experiment you're going to do and use that to build things that are really helpful to people so I think that's kind of when I first started to get interested in science. But I think especially in high school, you can fall into the trap of thinking that physics is really the place to do that only because it's just how these t subjects are classically taught. That is 
a very recurring theme. I, I was the same way. I, I wasn't that into biology until actually later in college. Yeah, exactly. Because I think once you're in college and you're finally exposed to just like the immense amount of like really interesting research that's going on across all fields that you can kind of realize like, oh, okay, like actually every field is like this and does experiments and like can learn from them and can predict what's going to happen next and use that to advance our knowledge and build cool things that help people. So then I think it was in college in the program that uh, David set up that really solidified interest in science and kind of how exciting it can be to push the limits of human knowledge, basically, in ways that are reproducible and also can be communicated and replicated. And yeah, just that's a pretty exciting concept, I think, in general. Do you have any thoughts on how we should change curriculum, how science is taught? I think in general, it's a bit of a double-edged sword these days, because I think one of the coolest things you could do would be to introduce earlier that science doesn't know everything and that like there's so much room for innovation. It's like, instead of thinking about math and science, it's like learn these rules, which obviously you have to do. Like to, to break the rules, you have to learn the rules. I'm a big believer in that. Like you'll, you'll be the best at breaking a rule once you fully understand it and like every assumption that's in it, et cetera. So I think like introducing that a bit more even earlier in people's science education, like middle school, like not just like, oh, there's hypotheses and then like learn all this stuff that's all fixed. Like giving a bit more of the story around how we figured out that genetic information was coded in DNA, things like that. Maybe even letting people do that experiment. Or maybe like if we wanted to take it further, like what were the things that we thought we knew that were wrong? Like experiments that proved one thing, but maybe ended up being disproved later and actually doing those experiments as well. I think that would really open people's minds to the possibility and like, oh, I can contribute to this. On the other end, there's so much skepticism and like conspiracies about science that it's tricky because then you're, like, that's the strength of science is that it can withstand that stuff. But then like, are you just going to lead people down like this weird path of like a no trust in science? Um, and I think that really comes down to how well that process is taught. So I think if we want to do that and we want to have really great science education that emphasizes that it's a continuous process and that like it's fallible and that there's things that are wrong even today. I think that relies on investing way more in education than we do at the moment, or at least better allocation of resources. So it's a tricky answer. So speaking of things we thought we knew, but we were wrong, what jumps out to you today as a candidate for that, right? So if you look at statistical genetics, for example, uh, you can certainly look a lot of the work that was done on candidate gene studies uh, some years ago that mostly turned out to be BS. It's probably a million things that would fall under that bucket <laughs> 10 years from now. But I think maybe one of the biggest ones is I think there's still an underappreciation for non-novel results, just like replication of results towards that point. Because right now, I think definitely the publishing standards are a little bit skewed towards like new results, whether those are confirmed later or not. Um, so it's just all the incentives are aligned towards publishing a new candidate gene rather than replicating a previous candidate gene. And there's reasons why that is helpful, right? You want to be driving forward like new knowledge, not just like resting on the laurels. I mean, often this like, you know, crisis of replication term is thrown around. I don't necessarily know if I'd use the word crisis, but I think something that would help uncover what we should be building on and what things maybe we have a few false assumptions on that could be fixed and then built on would be if we change the incentive structures around replication and the rewards for validating results and things like that. I think that's, 
I hope that in 10 years we look back and we say like, wow, what were we even thinking like on terms of like how we rewarded uh, replication studies and things like that. Like clearly that was the worst possible thing we could do. Do you have any, any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I think the main thing would just be that to emphasize for anyone that's doing a PhD that there's a lot of different options you can do after your PhD, like going to academia. I have friends that have really rewarding careers that path, like really enjoy it. Uh, I know people have gone that path in Asia as well. Uh, same for any path. But you know, in addition to industry, I think that there is this kind of new wave and openness towards having people at the forefront of science also be at the forefront of business. And it's definitely not something people should be shy about or think that they can't do. It's a good positive note to end on. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for coming on, Trevor. It was great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you.